Most of us dream of saving enough money or just having enough money to never have to worry about it ever again and just to be able to buy the things that we want to and do the things that we love to. Ray Mere is the head of investment distributions at Momentum. And I went to him to find the answers to the questions of saving. His title immediately piqued my interest. He explained that he helps financial advisors. Yes, they too need help. His job is to help financial advisors to choose the right products and to make the right choices about your investments so that you as a client can get the best possible deal and you can reap the benefits. When I received a media release from Ray, I just knew that I had to talk to him about money because his tips were practical and simple. And the best part, there was absolutely no financial jargon. The financial sector can at times be filled with so much jargon that all the advice and education can just sound like noise that you want to block out. With Ray, I found someone who not only simplified financial issues, but also motivates you to look at your finances in a different way. More than anything, he gives you a sense that all is not lost, and there's always hope and the possibility to start over again and get financially stable. But what stood out more than anything was his genuine desire to help people achieve financial stability. So, yeah, it's Ray Mary. My first question to you is, I just have to ask, what is the difference between a financial advisor and a financial planner? And why would I need one? Because the perception is that I need to be rich in order to have a financial planner. No, look, I think the terms are used interchangeably. Don't let the term determine whether someone is a good or bad financial advisor. I think whichever one you use, it's important that people realize that I said once before that a financial advisor is almost like a coach. They are to you as an individual what a coach is to an athlete. Obviously, we can all invest or we can all save by ourselves, but you need someone to kind of hold your hand and take you through the process to make sure that you, you don't miss certain things and that you understand what you're investing in. And hopefully they can guide you in such a way that at some point in the future, you can reach financial independence. The role of a financial advisor is not to make the wealthy wealthier, but rather to help people get to a point where they want to be. In, and I keep referring to this term financial independence because basically that's getting to a point where you can live off your savings and investments without having to rely on any other type of income. And it seems like such a hard thing to achieve. And like everything else, just like exercise or running a marathon, it starts off as, as such a hard thing to achieve. But with the help of a financial advisor, everyone can achieve it regardless of how much they've got or where they're starting. We all know that we must save and we all dream of saving and having enough money. But yet we keep putting it off for the future, for some time when we have enough money, we have a better job, we get that promotion or, you know, there's always something that we find to stop us from saving. I was very fortunate that um, I started in the financial services industry at the age of 26. So... I was able to very quickly understand the value of saving and saving early and then what people refer to as the power of compounding. So the earlier you start, obviously, the better off you are in the long run. It's such a pity. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do is get the message out to young people that people talk about retiring at 40 or retiring at 50. And they think that it's just something that you, your career is going to grow at such a trajectory that 
you're going to earn enough money then or you're going to have some big lump sum come your way. But actually, nothing really in life comes that easy, does it? You actually have to put in the hard work and you have to start early in order to reap the benefits of, of starting early. Setting a financial goal will make it easier to save because what I find is when you say I'm just saving to have more money, that is not enough motivation to actually put money away because once you have a goal, you have emotion and where emotion is this motivation and then it just becomes a bit easier to save. Exactly. It's one of those things where you actually have to start with some sort of goal and it's human nature. We tend to sacrifice and work hard if we put a goal towards it and work towards something and we tend to forget to do that with our finances. We do it with everything else in life where it's simple. Just start with the end in mind and then start working your way backwards to try and figure out what it is that you have to do to get there. And again, that's where I say having a financial advisor kind of gives you that clarity. Having someone to go see once a year to have that kind of financial health checkup to make sure that you're on the right track and you're doing all the right things. Someone who kind of you can go to and tell whether when you get married, when you have kids and then they push you to increase your savings or to make sure that you put this money aside for a rainy day. It's, unfortunately, our industry hasn't been very good at uh, making investments easy to understand. And that's the role that I believe financial advisors have is to, to kind of interpret all this jargon that you have in the industry so that the average person can actually understand it in order to start saving for their future. Another way that we don't realize where we can start saving is by looking at how we spend our money and checking our expenses. If you are listening to this today, I'm hoping that you haven't got to a point where you're desperate and you're now looking to kind of rewind and restart. I think if you are fortunate enough to be in a position where you're hearing this and you, you're in a good place, but you just want to improve your situation, then I would say first thing is just start by looking at your day-to-day -day expenditures. It seems like such a small thing, but combing through your bank statements and combing through some of your debit orders and your daily expenses. I mean, I'll give you an example. My wife, was she, she went onto her phone and got a, a kid's app for my daughter. And she didn't realize that she was actually putting in all the details, including bank details, even though it said it was one month free or something like that. After that month, it automatically started debiting. And this went on for a few months and she didn't notice that it was happening. Usually with these things, it's not, it's not a lot of money that you're, you're debiting, but even a hundred rand a month can add up to quite a bit. And I, that's what I mean is just look at your day-to-day -day expenditures. Look at some things like your, in the example that I give is insurance. Do you remember to phone your insurance companies? I mean, every year to say, look, please reduce the value of my car because actually it's not worth the same amount as it was worth last year. So you, I shouldn't be paying the same amount of insurance for it. It's just these small things that you gradually get into the habit of, of identifying in statements and expenditures and then start building a, like I call it an expense tracker. You can call it a budget of how much do you get in and how much do you want to spend and then Instead of waiting to save at the end of the month, rather save and pay yourself first at the beginning of the month. And the best way to do that is, is through a debit order where as the money hits your account, take some money out of your account and start putting it into a savings account. The idea is to initially build up an emergency fund, which everyone suggests should be three to six months worth of your, your income in case something happens. And then once you've got that sorted, then start building an investment portfolio. Let your money grow for you. We also have this idea that we have to save thousands every month if we want to be financially free. But actually, every little bit help 
You can start with what you have, and even that will make a difference in the long run. Yes, absolutely. And I read an article, they called it the latte effect. In South Africa, you can, I mean, you can refer to it as the coffee effect, where if someone who buys a coffee every single day at work, for example, saves, instead of buying their coffee, they decide to make their own coffee and get one of those kind of coffee mugs, and they make their coffee at home. They're essentially saving 25 rand a day or 20 rand a day, whichever it is that you'd like. And in a week, you end up saving 100 rand. And then in a month, you've saved up, you know, uh, 400, 500 rand. And then before you know it, that's a debit order. Most companies will take something like a 500 rand debit order just by stopping something that small. And guess what? If your child is, say, you've just got a newborn, if you put away 500 rand a month for a newborn, now, can you imagine how much money that will be when they turn 18 and it's time to go to university or when you want to give it to them for a wedding gift or to help them buy their first car or contribute to a deposit to their new house? You know, you get your quarterly statements. I got my statement from my retirement annuity that I started, like I said, when I started in the industry 10 years ago. And it's amazing watching how it started. And I literally started with a 500 rand debit order. And you can see, it seems like a small amount. And you can see when it just goes up every month by 500 and by the end of the year, it's only it's close to 6,000 rand. It doesn't seem like a lot of money. But then when you start seeing after two, three, four, five years, you start seeing that it's not actually what you're putting in that's making your money grow. It's the compounding effect. If 500 rand grows to 600 rand, now your next 10% earnings is not just on the 500 rand, it's now on the 600, and that's what compounding is. Over a 10-year period, you can end up in a position where your growth is actually higher on, on the money that you put in because of compounding rather than what you actually put in. Then, Ray, also a very important thing, and I think a lot of us struggle with this, is that our financial well-being, it is our personal responsibility. If you pick up the Saturday newspaper or the Sunday newspaper, there's always some sort of personal finance article in there. Getting to a point where now the information is out there, it's just people, we find it daunting and we kind of bury our head in the sands and we, we're now coming up with excuses of not to engage with that content. The content is out there. Engage with the content. If you feel overwhelmed, you know, ask for help. And that's where I say either a financial advisor or companies such as ours, you can literally walk in and ask someone for, to help you with your finances and they'll take the time to do that. The help is out there. And I think people who feel that they're, they're overwhelmed by financial talk or fi finances or just their own situation should definitely seek out some sort of help. And it's more than your responsibility because it's actually your obligation to your family, if you think about it. Again, people think that university and even private school, people think that these things are only for the, uh, for the wealthy people. I'll give you an example. My wife and I married in 2015 but we'd met in 2010 by the time it was 2013 we knew we wanted to be together so we didn't wait for a marriage contract to start saving together we actually started a savings account intended for our kids to go to a good school after we'd done the research of what kind of schools we'd want our kids to go to and we started two years before we even got married and our first child was only born in 2016 so we already had a three-year head start on saving for our kids' education, and she's opening four now. So altogether, we would have given ourselves a good six years. I mean, in terms of saving for her education, and in fact, we just had a, a little one. I mean, the first thing I did was open up a tax-free savings account for her so that one day when she turns 18, you know, I may hand it over to her then or give it to her as a 21st birthday present, or it can help us send her to university. I, I feel like it's our obligation to make sure that if we can save, even if it's only 500 rand a month for the next 20 years, that will make such a huge difference to those that we love.
On the one hand, we are being encouraged to save, but on the other hand, we are being bombarded with offers to enter into debts. How do you deal with that? I get really frustrated when I get those text messages from these institutions offering you, you know, 300,000 with come open your account with us. We'll give it. Is, it is way too easy for people to get debt. And it's such a sad thing. But having said that, we must be careful not to paint all debt with the same brush. Not all debt is bad. I think there are times when debt is necessary, but there are definitely and certainly times where debt should be your last, last resort and avoidable if necessary and if possible. Please explain to me, what do you mean when you say there's good debt and there's bad debt? Because we were told that debt is debt and debt is bad. So for me, good debt is essentially when you go and borrow money to buy something that will increase your, your value or your net worth. And I'll give you examples of that. So if you buy something that increases in value to the extent that you know, after you've paid off your debt, it's actually worth more than the initial borrowing itself and the interest payments, then that's good debt. If you buy something that's going to earn you an income that will eventually exceed what you actually borrowed and what the interest payments are, that's, that's good debt. And a, a good example of that is, you know, it, you know, we all aspire one day to buy a house, um, although these days it might actually be better to rent. But in the good old days, I think all property agents tell you location, location, location. If you worked hard, you got a good job and you bought a nice house in a nice area, it would appreciate in value. And although you're paying it, you know, you got quite a huge debt there. You knew that the value of that house would end up being more than what you actually borrowed. So for me, those kind of things are good debt. Another one would be borrowing to, for education. So if you're borrowing to go to university, education loans, I think that's good debt because it's increasing your value as an individual. Hopefully, if you pass your degree or whatever it is that you want to study, you'll come out of there and hopefully get a great job that increases your earning power. Borrowing to start a small business sometimes. Although this one comes with caveats, I think there's percentages of people who succeed in small businesses they are pretty low. But for those that do and those who are passionate about what they're doing, or they've already got a small business that's doing well, they just need to expand. In my mind, those kind of things are good debt. It's debt that's going to increase your value as an individual. Explain a little bit more. Bad debt. In my mind, it's usually short-term debt, and it's usually something that decreases in value as soon as you bought it. So you know, people who use your store cards uh, to buy clothing or to buy furniture, to sponsor a wedding or a birthday party. Those kind of things, they lose their value almost immediately and then you end up paying for it. And, and with all these things, I would always urge people, ask yourself the question, is it really necessary and are you not able to just delay your gratification just a bit longer? Trust me, I think you'll enjoy it a bit more if you save up for it and then pay for it in cash instead of using your overdraft or credit card. Because if you look at the interest rates that you're paying, at least with a mortgage or a bond, your interest rates are pretty low, especially now. But with use your overdraft or your credit cards, that interest rate kind of it doubles at least. Hopefully, if you're dealing with a, an accredited institution, they should tell you what you're paying. So let me give you an example. Recently, the Reserve Bank used interest rates. They call that the repo rate. And that's kind of the starting point for most financial institutions. The banks would give you a mortgage or a bond, then add something to that in order for them to make money, obviously. So, and then they'll so say it's 3.5 and then they'll add their own 3.5 and then they'll give you an interest rate of 7% over 20 years to buy a property. That's reasonable. And, and I guess that's why I say it's long-term debt and it's lower because the bank believes that if you're not able to pay it off, they can always reclaim the house and sell the house and, and pay off the debt. If you then use a credit card or an overdraft facility where the bank 
does not have some sort of collateral or something that they can repurchase, retake from you and sell it on to pay off the debt, they believe that they're taking more risk. And because they're taking more risk, they're going to charge you more interest. I think now you're probably paying 15, 16% in terms of the average, your, some of the credit cards out there. And then the worst kind is what I called ugly debt is where the person you're borrowing from, which I call loan sharks, is not even accredited. So they're not even licensed to do it, but you found yourself in a position where you have to go to someone to, to get a quick short-term loan. During this time of COVID, I really hope that people are, are not going this route, but I understand the situation that people are in. In these kind of cases where you go to someone and they give you, say, a thousand rand, the interest is not even disclosed, but by the time you pay it back, you have to give them back 2,000 rand in a month or two months or three months. That's exorbitant costs. And that's why when we talk about interest and what you and the cost of debt, you have to ask yourself, why am I paying so much for this debt? If the bank is not willing to give it to me, what is the reason for the bank not willing to give it to me? There may be a good reason for that. And then you need to reflect within yourself. Should I rather wait and save? And if you cannot wait and save, or if you find yourself in a really difficult position, are there other people you can go to, family members, friends, that are probably more, more likely going to treat you more humanely than some of these people who provide what I call this ugly debt? That was Ray Mary, Head of Investment Distribution at Momentum Investments. I am Olivia Sambo, and this is Rose Tinted Glasses. Thank you for listening. I hope you could take a few tips of the advice that Ray has given.